Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to The Shapes of Stories, a podcast with me, Lawrence Prestige, as your host. Stories come in all shapes and sizes, whether it be from our favourite books, our life experiences, or the day-to-day challenges and issues we face in the world today. Yeah, really excited to bring you this episode as I get to talk to, well, um, EastEnders legend, television legend, uh, Lucy Benjamin. Really great talking to Lucy, uh, not just about her EastEnders career, but, you know, all sorts, how she's been doing um, during the pandemic, you know, her time on her reality TV shows, um, you know, such as um, The X Factor, Battle of the Stars, uh, as many years ago, and how Sharon Osbourne actually revealed she was pregnant. We talk about that on the show. Her time in I'm a Celebrity. And yeah, we talk about lots of times. Um, Lucy was caught in the very controversial um, phone hacking scandal, and she talks about that very candidly. And her relationship with Barbara Windsor, really interesting to hear about that. Um, but yeah, had a really great time talking to Lucy. And um, yeah, I can't wait to share this episode with you. She's a really lovely lady and I really enjoy talking to her. Um, be sure to follow us on our social media pages. You can follow us on Twitter at Shapes of Stories. You can follow me on Instagram under Prestige Books. You can follow me on my Facebook page, Lawrence Prestige, and our Facebook page, The Shapes of Stories. Um, be sure to check out my new book. I've said it a couple of times um, on previous episodes, but um, you know it's a really important book to me. I kind of it's my first book away from children's literature, um, and yeah, I just want to kind of help people, especially men, be less afraid as I um, open up and talk about my my battle, I suppose, with with mental health and depression and addiction, and um, yeah, uh, I just really want to to ask you guys to support the book if you're able to. Um, it's called The Boy Who Lost His Smile by me, Lawrence Prestige. And um, yeah, you know, if it helps one person, then that's amazing. That's, you know, why I wrote the book for already. And, you know, proceeds go to um, the Sure Mind charity as well. So um, yeah, some of the proceeds go to that charity. So be sure to um, check out the charity, check out the book if you can. Um, yeah, just trying to raise awareness of people out there that might be struggling. Um, but anyway, without further ado... Here's my chat with the wonderful Lucy Benjamin. <laughs> Hi, Lucy. Um, so how have you been, I guess, first of all, how have you been doing, you know, this last 18 months with the whole COVID thing? Um, it's been, it, was a funny, it was a funny time, really, wasn't it, for everybody? Um Mm-hmm. There was some, I mean, there were some some good things about it in as much as that we spent a lot of time together as a family. My husband, who works really hard, um, is often not at home. So it was great for him to be at home, albeit he was down the end of the garden in a shed having to work right. remotely in that way. Um, but it's, you know, that, that was a nice thing about it. Um, and the fact that we were just kind of... Uh, just home would ba- homebound and we couldn't we couldn't do anything else and uh and it was just kind of regrouping really and we were having to talk to each other as opposed to kind of going off and do different things and and filling your life with other stuff so on in that respect you know we took the positives out of it on another respect homeschooling was revolting um, <laughs> yeah. it, it you know it was nearly the death of me um <laughs> it was it was yeah it was just interesting on lots of different levels really I learned 
a lot about the, you know mathematical equations that I, I never really thought I knew, oh. you know um and lots of English bits and you know it was it so that was interesting but as I say it was tough it was tough. yeah so were your kids kind of the secondary school age that were um, affected? my youngest like, uh my youngest is 10 now so um she was just turned she was just turning nine when, when right. it hit um so I was schooling her really my, my, right. my oldest daughter was um 13 so she was kind of pretty self-sufficient I mean I couldn't have helped her out anyway I'd be useless at her, her <laughs> level of work but it was um yeah, yeah. so I, I was mostly homeschooling her yeah so is, is that like quite you know I guess did they miss quite a big part of their school life like in terms of like going into new years and things like that yeah I mean I think what they missed more than anything else was the social interaction um yeah. and I noticed that um you know we we moan about them about being online so much and using their their iPads but that was the only way the kids were talking to each other you know um and that was the only way they were able to still carry on with their relationships with their friends so you know we were having to just kind of, it was very difficult to monitor their time on on computers at that point because, you know, their lessons were virtual, their their, their interaction with their peers was was virtual. So, um, you know, th- the biggest thing was that that physical social interaction that I think they missed out on. You know, our, our school was really quite good in as much as they had two Zoom lessons a day, um, and then we had to fill in the rest ourselves. You know, they'd set lessons, but we would have to oversee them at home. Um, so I. You know, I kind of felt more the play, the stuff they missed in the playground. You know, the stuff that my, yeah. my eldest daughter would have missed in the canteen. It was, mm. it was that really. I felt that they that they missed out on. You know, just meeting up with your mates in the park, or uh, it was that more. And I and I felt and I, I, you know, I did feel for them in that respect. And you had to kind of give them a bit of a break when it came to that. You know, but it, you know, it was it was very tough being teacher, being mum, being you know wife, and then trying to still try try and get a semblance of a of a job, keeping money coming in myself as well at the same time, you know, especially, I mean, when I was trying to reprimand the kids, it'd be like, well, are you the teacher now? Are you the mum? Because we're, <laughs> yeah. we're not really listening to you. With yeah. It. Um, yeah. So, but it, we've come out the other side, basically, mm-hmm. you know, and we're all in one piece, touch wood and, you know, scarred slightly as a result of it. We've got war wounds, I suppose, like everybody has, but we didn't, you know, we, we were so fortunate we didn't lose anybody um, during that time. And, you know, my mum's late late 70s, my husband's mum's mid 70s, and we were really aware of keeping them safe and doing and doing the right thing. Um, we were yeah. quite, we were sticklers for the rules, really. So we were good. We were good in that. Respect. Yeah, that's good. Do you think a lot of it as well, you have to be careful what you let into your sort of world you know in terms of like the news and stuff because there was just especially in 2020 there was just so much crap happening at the same time in terms of covid lockdown we had you know uh, brexit was happening you had like donald trump be um doing his thing and you know and there was like um, the death of george floyd there was this you know lots of things going on at the same time and i think the more we were kind of stuck in in lockdown and like having to watch the news for updates to find out what was going yeah. on then the more the more it would be crap because you're just realising how much stuff was going on. Yeah, I think there was only so much crap, like you say, you could take. Yeah. But I think that the COVID news became almost addictive. That's what I felt. We were kind of mm. becoming, like, the, the 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 briefings, the five o'clock briefings were, even my daughter was saying, come on, it's 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 bojo time. And, and you know, it, we became slightly obsessive about it, I think. And the, the daily figures was, we were obsessing over. Yeah. Um, 
but you know it was a case of having to kind of monitor that as well in terms of the bad news that was hitting i was very much aware of that about my my you know my 10 year old she was you know turning nine at the time um about the, the impact that that was having on would be having on her life really I, you know I, I i felt that betty my eldest was was a lot was old enough to kind of handle it um but i was very aware of there being too much bad news coming into the house um but as i say I think I think as as much as I became obsessed by it, it, it was it, it was something I think the children were living so much that I think they actually they wanted to see what you know that the the new stuff when it came to COVID. So I was um, you know I, we would kind of turn it off a little bit after that. I wouldn't I didn't want too much negativity coming into the house. I mean, in our, in my in my eyes, the kind of Brexit thing went, we just kind of got rid of that, moved on, didn't want to hear it. Um, we'd had so much of it um, yeah. that we kind of put that on the on the back burner a little bit. But um I think because the kids were living the co with COVID so much in terms of their just their 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 daily routine about how it affected their lives. Um, I think they were they had a vested interest and they were they did seem to want to know daily about what was going on um mm -hmm. yeah but they seem to cope yeah and I guess coming out the other side of that you're you know you're back in doing doing work you're doing theatre right panto seasons back on panto, yeah I mean I, I hate to say that it's it's definitely happening I'm too I'm always, I'm always <laughs> like I'm tempting fate it's too I'm too scared right. to say it I mean it, it mm. is and it's all signed and sealed and everyone's advertising their pantos and but I just you know I think we've all learned a little bit about you know, throwing caution to the wind. We've just got to be a bit more, a bit careful, really. You know, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm can't wait to get my flu jab. I can't wait to get my booster jab. You know, just, I just want to, um, I just want to make sure these th that it carries on. That, you know, normality is coming back into all our lives, and and we can go back to work. I mean, it was lovely for me because I worked all over the summer back in the theatre as well, um, which was a that was a different experience. Again, really, with that was that was um, sold socially distance. Uh, the show that we did in the summer. So the plan is to sell Panto at full capacity. Um, but I, you know, I'm just I feel that if the minute I say yeah, 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 it's on, you know, the next thing the phone will ring and say, uh, listen, you know. So I'm just yes, yeah. <laughs> it is on. <laughs> it is. Oh yes, it is. Yeah, <laughs> it's not behind. <laughs> I mean, were you were you worried about theatres? I suppose you know, when it was that, you know, back in sort of 2020, when it was, we had no idea what the future was going to look like, especially, I guess, for the smaller regional theatres. Yeah, I, know, I was I mean, very, what, what I was happen. really worried about what was going to happen to theatres. You know, they struggle at the best of times, regional theatres, and pantomime is, is kind of their lifeblood. It's what keeps them going. It keeps the towns going. Um, you know, you, you get you get a full house for panto and, and you know, your Greg's down the road, your pawn shops in poor, in some of these poorer towns, you know, the things that keep them going are their, their, their pawn shops, their pound shops, their, their Greg's bakeries, their McDonald's. And, you know, you kind of, you don't have a panto, you've got a quiet high street. Um, so the impact is huge, just on, you know, on, in, in local in local terms but very very worried about theatres closing and I think some have gone by the wayside as a result of Covid um so it will be a joy to get back in to the theatre and, and just see see a town alive again you know because some of these towns that Panto's opened up in you know they're very poor areas sometimes and and people save up a lot of money to go and see the, the, the show at Christmas and it is it's something they look forward to and saying it does generate money for the rest of the town during during the year mm -hmm. yeah 
And I think I think some kids, you know, struggle. I was at school not long ago, and I was we talked. I think the topic of Panto came up, and this one kid had no idea. It was quite an oldish kid, like probably year four. I had no idea what pantomime was. He was just like, he asked me if it was in 3D. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I had no, had no idea about the concept of uh, a pantomime. Um, so where where was, was he? Where, where was he from? Where, where did he? This was in like, this was in like Buckinghamshire. Oh, so they, so, and they yeah. made loads of pantos around there as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, he's no probably going around of... with his head in his phone or in his iPad, you know, he's driving around in the back of his mum and dad's car and not even seeing the billboards for it or something. You know, that's what you worry about. Kids yeah. aren't even looking up from their phones. But, um, oh, yeah. you know, that's that's the worry, isn't it, about kids that they're everything. I mean, my kids don't even watch mainstream telly. I mean, everything is you, no, you. No. Everything is everything is you know on online in terms of even their their programming really. Um, so things are changing, but but I know I know the first theatre thing I ever went to see. My grandma took me to see Jim Jim Davidson as Buttons in Cinderella at Guildford, you know, and I'm I still remember it now coming away with a um, a ballpoint pen as a souvenir, you know, and I just yeah. but it stayed with me and I remember it vividly, and it's sometimes the first the first time kids get into the theatre, so. Um, you know, I'm really proud of Panto. I'm not, I'm not, you know, it gets me a bit cross and people are a bit snobby about it, but you know, it takes, not everybody can do it. It's not, it's not, everyone no. thinks, oh, anyone can do Panto. It's not, it's kind of, you know, you've, it's a certain craft and, and to do it well, you know, that's the most thing I, I don't, you know, I really stand behind being good at your job and, and engaging with the kids and, and making a show good enough for the adults to want to come and see where they don't sit there thinking, oh my God, this is the worst two hours of my life. You know, you want you want the adults to enjoy it as well. So it's about it's about hitting the right, the right no and, and doing a good job, you know, because it might yeah. say it might be the first it might be the thing that, that, that gets kids, that grips them and they think, A, I either want to do that myself, or B, I want to come and see something else that's, that's going to be in this theatre. You know, wow. Mm -hmm. And maybe just kind of you know getting the magic from it yeah do, do you worry about like i guess the social media aspect of the next generation as it as it gets a bit more older because they're just more and more obsessed with i feel like if you said to a teenager you know i could you could wake up tomorrow and you could be exceptionally talented at the piano or whatever you want to be at or b you could just wake up and have a million followers on instagram for no particular reason they'd all go i'll have the million followers on instagram i mean that that i mean that is my fear and you know, I'm living with a 14 year old that um, that her head. I mean, she, she's a very busy 14 year old. I mean, you know, and she has gone down. She does play the piano and she plays the drums. But it is a constant kind of thing. Me going, you, you know, you've got to please get your head out the phone. Please, please read a book. Please do your piano practice. Please, because I, 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 even though she's got these things behind her and things to do, I still think she would happily sit just head buried in the phone on social media just talking to her friends that way as opposed to even going to maybe to meet them sometimes and I and, it, and I worry that it does I worry about the impact on their mental health I worry that mm. I don't know that it's just not a real world so but but because it's not a world that I understand I also think that am I being a bit of a dinosaur you know me <laughs> right, not yeah. being up on the times mum get with the program or am I you know am I over worrying or am I just not very Am I not up with the way things are now? Um, it's a it's a fine it's a fine line, isn't it? And it's finding that balance as a parent as well. But, yeah. You know, I, I'm not tech savvy. You know, hence the way you're today <laughs> coming online to you. But I'm you know I'm just I'm not tech savvy. But, and there has to be an element of you you trusting them and and but I I do 
you know, sometimes it might, if I see Bess upset and I'll just say, please put that, put the phone down. It might, you might not think it's linked to that, but I think it might be linked to that. And then can you pick up a book mm-hmm. and take your, take your head somewhere else? And that's, that's the worry that we're losing the art of reading and, you know, as you know, the playing the piano, be, you know, there is a piano right here behind my shoulder and I just, you know, put, get, get up on that piano. Um, but, yeah. they, but they'll do what they, they'll do what, what their peers do. They'll do what their friends do, you know. Mum, yeah. you know, mum, you're just old and you don't get it. You, you know, that's yeah. the standard response, really. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's not even the fact, like, you know, you sort of use it to sort of keep in contact with friends and stuff. It's just, it's so open, like, anyone can follow anyone and anyone can compare themselves to someone else's reality, you know, and think, well, that's where they are at my age, so why aren't I feeling like that happy and successful in a minute. It's a worry, especially for like teenagers, I think. But it's, I mean, it's something that, that's not going away though, is it? I mean, that's that's here to stay. And isn't isn't it about managing, then being able to decipher between what's real and what's not real, that that's what they've now got to get the art of is, is being able to decipher what's real, what's not real, being able to kind of laugh at some things and say, you know, I might follow that person but I know it's not real, but I, I, I can compartmentalize that. Um, Cause it, nothing, it's, it's just not going away. And it's about trying to make them so savvy about all of it. And I don't know. Yeah. I, you know, I don't know if I'm the person to do that. I don't, I don't know. You know, it's, it's a constant worry as a mum. Yeah. It really is. It is. Yeah. It's just the comparing, I think as well. It's just like, I mean, I, even I, I can go on Instagram and be like seven o'clock in the morning, you know, and you can see someone like The Rock up at four o'clock in the morning and doing running and gym. He's like, he's done all that at the four o'clock while I'm still in bed. You know, like, even oh, with someone oh, like The Rock. Or off. You know, I, I, just, yeah. I try, I really try and talk myself out of that and just go, oh, well, that's what they want to do. Get on with it. Fine. Oh, I'll yeah, have a cup of tea. Yeah. I'll have had two cups of tea by then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And last, last week we got to talk to um, Jack Ryder, who played oh, Jamie Mitchell. Yeah. Yeah, in, yeah. in EastEnders, and he was talking about, um, you know, his time on EastEnders yeah. and the the sort of craziness of it all. And he was sort of, I didn't realize how, you know, how much that kind of sardom in EastEnders was. How you know, in terms of, he was saying he can go to like a a shop in to get trainers or something. They'd have to close the shop down, and he just said it was a bit. He got to a point where he had a bit enough of it. Yeah, he was kind of he was almost like pop star status though, Jack. When he mm-hmm. when he came in the show. And I think um, I think EastEnders, uh, the BBC at that point, were equally as shocked by the reaction that that Jack got when he first came into the show. I mean, he was a young boy. He was like, you know, he was like, a, 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 you know, pin-up status really with for for young girls at that point, and probably young boys as well. And I just think um, he they they weren't prepared for it. I don't think anybody was prepared for that level of instant fame and I think Jack hadn't I don't think he'd kind of come from a like a theatre school background if I if I remember rightly I'm not sure so yeah he said there was no there was no training there was no one there for him to go to there was nobody it just kind of came like a steam train um and you know I'd kind of worked steadily along my way and and it was you know a a slow burn for me but Jack just hit the ground running and I remember him really struggling actually with it about Mm. that that level of fame and how and the and the impact the impact on his life at that time and yeah I know it was hard yeah. very hard for him very hard mm. yeah do you, I, I guess you think like you know you I guess you sort of see it now on a different level with like the Love Island contestants mm-hmm. and stuff like that like 
and some of them come out. I mean, there's been some awful stories from Love Island, you know, in terms of mental health and the suicides that have happened. Do you think a lot of it is kind of being, like you say, steamrolled into that fame, and then suddenly they come out of it? They, you know, everyone wants to talk to them for a certain amount of time, yeah. but then yeah. the next season comes along, and it's like they're back into who are you sort of territory again. Well, you know. I, I was a theatre school trained girl and I, I um, and it, it's not that they teach you how to deal with that in theatre school. It's just, you you know, you go through the, I was, I also worked steadily professionally during my, my, my school years. Um, and you, you know that it's a job. You, you kind of, um, it's a slow burn. You know, you'll, you'll get, I was, I worked on things, some things hit big, some things, you know, didn't, but each one was a job for its own merits. And I think things like Love Island and, People are just made famous, and that they're, they're, you know, you can be a doctor or, you know, completely plucked out of a relatively normal job compared to what we do, where they have no idea about about fame and that's and that side of the industry, that part of the industry. And I think it's a massive shock to the system. And I think, um, you know, there's something to be said for for spending those years training um, at theatre school and drama school and appreciating that you know how, how what the job entails and the things that can sometimes come along along with it and I think if you've had no training for that it it must be it just must hit you from out of nowhere it must be very very difficult to to deal with um mm-hmm. you know I, even though I'd worked steadily up until I got EastEnders and um you know I remember i, I I, I handled it okay in terms of people, the attention that it got, but it wasn't ever, it didn't seem to be like the Love Island so, sort of thing. I mean, we, we were we were in the papers a lot, you know, it was the time of, mm-hmm. um, it, you know, there weren't so many channels and um, there was no, there weren't the phones taking photographs and things and people being able to be in control of their own publicity. So, you know, there were all the magazines and things and, you know, that that was my most high profile job. So, you know, I had I had a degree of it, but I just think I'd steadily worked along up to it. And I didn't, you know, I didn't kind of buy into the whole self-importance thing about it, you know, because a lot of people can kind of go, oh, I, I am really that special. I'm really that big. I'm really that famous. I'm really, I can really get tables here and I can, and think that it's going to last forever. Um, mm-hmm. And they can kind of almost believe in their own hype. And I think that's, you know, there's only one way, one way to go from up and that's, and that's down. And that's, a, that's a, I remember Toby Jones actually saying, sorry to name drop, but I do remember him, we were filming to Tetris one year and he just said to me, well, there's only one place to go from famous and that's not famous, you know, and that's, mm-hmm. and that's a big, and that's a big drop. And I think, I think you are kind of prepared for that. If you're, if you go to drama school and college and theatre school, you know, that is in your psyche that it's, you know, it might be great then, but it, it can also go, it can go that way. And it's, you know, it, and you just have to learn to live with that. And you're kind of, you are, I suppose you are prepared for it, to be honest. So I do, I do worry about these kids that kind of just find a massive amount of fame very quickly because it's only going to go one way and it hurts. Dealing. I was going to, yeah, I was going to ask what it was like for for you, I suppose, like when the sort of height of your EastEnders career, was it a bit mad? I mean, you were involved in one of the biggest EastEnders storylines, you know, ever in terms of who shot Phil. Well, you were the shooter, right? You were the shooter of, yeah, you shot Phil Mitchell. So, I mean, what was, I guess, you know, was it ever sort of crazy, a bit mad for you, like going out and things? Yeah, it was, you know, you had, you had, you had the press camped outside the door and, um, you know, there'd be photographers following you. And I mean, that, it kind of was, it was round about that time. But, um, you know, if you, if you were living in London as well, 
I mean, we, at the time I was filming that, I lived in Highbury in North London. And I remember we had, there was Cathy Burke, who was up the road, you had Elaine Lord around the corner, who also was on EastEnders at the time, playing years later. There was me, you know, there was Steve McFadden down, you know, we were all North London based. So, so, so perhaps we'd just literally do a tour and just kind of hang outside your doors, just wait and see who they could get. And they, you know, more often than not, get probably all of us in, in one hit. But um, yeah, you know, with with along with storylines comes that kind of attention, um, mm -hmm. and you don't really ever get used to a, a you know a camera being shoved in your face. I would say, but you do kind of you do part part of you just goes, uh, you know, the show is very was very high profile at that time. You know, I think there was about twenty one million viewers at you know the peak mm -hmm. of, of that kind of storyline. Um, the split share of the TV audience wasn't what it what it is now. You know, it was four or four or five channels, and that and that was a lot really. Um, and I just it we were kind of told that it kind of came with the territory, um, and it was you know they were there, they were hanging out and they were hiding, and you know you go for a jog and you know you'd have perhaps just jumping out or whatever. But you got you did then get used to you got used to it a little bit, but you knew that it came it did come with the territory, and there was nothing like. There were no other jobs that kind of that entailed that sort of thing. It did seem to be soap stars at that point back in the early late nineties, early noughties, where it was mm. it was it was soap stars that were kind of getting a hit a lot um, with it. So yeah, I mean, I've I've kind of gone through that a bit. It's not particularly pleasant, but you take it for what it is. Really, else you yeah. know what what else can you do? Um, yeah, you're kind of grateful there wasn't Twitter and oh Instagram then. Oh, oh, I mean, thank the Lord for small mercies, really. I mean, I am, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm overjoyed that there were no there were no camera phones, and it was just all kind of starting. I think when I when I sort of left. Um, mm -hmm. So yes, I mean, it wasn't particularly nice. We had we just had newspapers that were hacking our telephones. You know? well, oh yeah, true, was, yeah, I mean, I don't know which one I'd rather have had to be honest. <laughs> um, but yeah, so yeah, there was there was a horrible there was a horrible side of it. There was a dark, definitely a dark side of of, yeah. of, of the fame at that at that time. Yeah. How do you even discover that someone's hacking your telephone? Like, how do you how do you sort of come about learning about that? Police, police, not my police. They, they uh, informed police you. Literally right. not. Uh, they 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 phoned me up and they said we need to come and see you. Um, we've uh, and I think I think the telephone I think it was Orange Network at the time. They, they, I think they, they found it out, and then they contacted the police, and then the police. I, I had, I literally had no idea. I had no idea. Wow. That's had scary, none. isn't it? Yeah. No idea whatsoever. And then when you kind of uncover it, and they, you realise it was, it was going on for seven years, and by three different newspapers. Um, and and when you, you know, I went to court. Actually, had my day in court, which I'm really pleased about. Um, you know, they uncover that they've got receipts for private investigators and that were also that the, the newspapers were employing just to tell you you know so you think you're seeing a pap you know and you go oh, oh that's for heat magazine or that's for that i look dreadful but little do you know there's also private investigators following you so it was it was it that that was dark i mean when that all came out but just, yeah. yeah it was the police that that let me know and then they turned up and interviewed me and then it went from there really and then it wow. just snowballed Mm. yeah great and like just I mean how did you feel like like you say when you discover like seven years of it and I, I guess did you sort of add things up as well like oh that's how they got that information yeah. and it all started to kind of make sense Absolutely. that's exactly what it was just things started to make sense yeah. that didn't make sense mm. for a long time you know and mm. and you and I was accusing people of um 
selling stories and that people that were close to you or you know phoning up newspapers and telling them things not necessarily for money even sometimes I just assume that people got got a kick out of Mm. reporting stuff and you know and it did have a detrimental effect and then you know you and I ended up being quite paranoid you know scared to speak and then I thought you know then I was blaming myself thinking it's me I must be going out and talking really loudly to people about private stuff and people must just be overhearing so you know all these things were going through your mind and then so so the relief was that a you weren't mad um, and B, you weren't to blame, and C, neither were your family and friends. Um, so it, that was the best thing to, to have come out of it, really. And, and just tying up all those kind of loose ends and just going, that was that, and that was that. No wonder, you know. Uh, and then kind of eventually being cross game, well, because of that, that ended in that, you know. And, um, but, it, but it making perfect sense, you know, as to what was yeah. going on. Perfect mm-hmm. yeah mm. yeah absolutely wow mm. it's just crazy crazy can't imagine <laughs> can't imagine it crazy. just like crazy yeah that yeah thought up you know that it, mm-hmm. that it was get away with for such a long time and how many people that were victims of yeah. it that's what's incredible as well incredible mm. i mean it's still going on now people not not the phone hacking but people now being contacted saying your number has come you know they're still investigating it now and people are finding out now that they were phone hacked you know only just now it's incredible that's crazy crazy i mean like i said we talked about the really big storyline you're involved in who shot phil mitchell i mean what was all i I remember being at school and just you know everyone was talking about at school who you think it is and (laughs) and and, and everything i mean what was that whole storyline like being involved and what i mean guess when did you find out that you were the shooter is it something you have to keep private for very a long time did you know for a long time or I kind of can't remember the exact kind of time frame of things, but I think we shot, we started shooting the um, actual, the actual kind of storyline. I think I'm trying to think if I think Phil was shot. The scenes of Phil being shot were were filmed, but nobody. And then there was a bunch of us that knew that we were suspects, if I remember rightly. I mean, it's such a long time ago now. There was a bunch of us that were told that we were all suspects and, you know, um, and none of us were going to be told at that point which one of us it was. And, and, and we kind of thought, oh, maybe because they don't know who, who it is yet. Um, so I, so we were all just kind of playing that it could have been us, it could have been us. And then I think after a few weeks of that kind of happening, then we were all brought up one at a time to see the um, John York, who was exec producer at the time to be told which of us it was or wasn't. And everyone apart from me was told that it wasn't them and it was me, but I was also then to go downstairs and say to them, it wasn't me. So and so I had to carry on this lie, which was just, I mean, it's genius really, but at the time I was thinking, this is ridiculous. I'm talking to my work colleagues and I'm having to lie to my work colleagues. And so we were all sitting there saying, well, well if it's not you and it's not me, someone's lying here and or, or maybe it's just someone they, they maybe they, there's something completely random that's not been included in this at all so and I had to I had to run with that for quite some time I think for about six weeks I had to run with that um, and then we filmed the scenes of the reveal of who shot Phil, Phil separately and you know in a um in a separate studio so nobody got wind of it with a very limited crew but I think that was a success of um of the storyline really in the fact that they managed to keep it so secret because things get leaked and you know be it from the press office or whatever you know in, deliberately um 
Mm-hmm. or unintentionally things get leaked but I uh, I think the success of that storyline was the fact they managed to keep it secret for such a long time and and the viewers didn't find out literally until the episode of the reveal and so that was yeah, that was cool. thrilling I mean that was I mean it was glorious to be to be to be picked that it was you know it was my character and then to have kind of pulled the wool over everybody's eyes <laughs> so was yeah. good really as well yeah no I, I can even remember like just just before the reveal you know i remember like all the there's like all those knocks on the doors there's like a knock on the door wasn't oh, there from one. different yeah. characters yeah and then like, it was like showing like the suspects that it'd be someone completely he would like gary you know there's a knock on his door like no why is gary yeah. involved but there's like all these knocks on the door and it, you know i can remember that yeah. and being a kid just being like oh wait we don't know who it is it's got to wait another day to find out and i don't think people <laughs> thought it would be lisa because i think they'd always Oh, she was a bit too wet to do it, and she just cried mm. too much, and it couldn't be her. Yeah. You know, but I think she had. I think she had the biggest motive motive to do it. Really, you yeah. know, he'd 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 emotionally bullied her and and abused her for years. So I think I think it was yeah. it was smart. Yeah. And so, was, how long was like your break from EastEnders when you left and then you returned? You had quite a, a big few, well, well, several years out, wasn't it? Well, first time I think I think I left the first time in two thousand and three after doing nearly five years something like that and then then I went away for a few for quite a few years and came back I think I just did a one-ep appearance with Louise I can't remember if I was kidnapping her again or if I was bringing her back I can't remember but then I um then I went back then there was another big gap and I went back again then I think Louise was an, an older was 19 or something and I think she'd been burnt at a school prom and I think I turned up again I did about two weeks there and Lisa got these um, psychological problems and mental health issues. So I played that kind of storyline. Then I went away again for about three more years. And then I just, I think 2019, just before we locked down, I was back for six months and we yeah. did a, we did the storyline where in, it was Mel's, Tamsin Althwaite, uh, she played Mel, her, her death. So I was there to, to, to take part in that storyline. And then also for Louise was leaving. So I was taking Louise away again and then yeah so it's I do I quite like now that she dips in and out because for me it's nice that I get to do some fabulous stuff when I go and then I can I can leave and then I'm free to do other bits and bobs because if when you're there you're not free to do other stuff I mean I've heard this from a few people you're there and you you just do EastEnders and it becomes like this all-consuming bubble I mean it's literally that's all you know and you think you almost think it's the only program that's being made in the world it's kind of really it's a bubble it's a massive bubble but it has to be like that in terms of it's a slick it's a slick thing it's a machine and so you have to be all engaged with it and it's all consuming. So I like that I go in, I can do an intense six months, I leave, and then I can do lots of other, other, other lovely jobs. It's, you know, really, it's great. I think I've got the best of both worlds in that respect. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Because I, I suppose, like, I mean, what we spoke to Joe Joyner as well, who does Tanya yeah. Brannan, and, um, you know, she obviously not doing standards at the minute, but I think as well, you've got, there's got to be a reason for your character to go back. Cause it's like, especially with Tanya Brannan, it's like, why would you go back to somewhere that's so awful for your character? You know, where your child's died and, you know, and, and things like that. And you've had so many horrific moments. Yeah. But I mean, see, yeah. it, it just depends on, on personally, professionally what you're up to at that time. Yeah. And, and, hmm. and you do want to make sure that, um, it's not a wasted opportunity that they've written some good stuff and they've got a good storyline in mind for you in order to go back, 
you know, it's not, you shouldn't just go back to the safe again, back really. I think it's important. I mean, I had some, I, they, they're always really great to my character and they do write some really lovely stuff. So I kind of knew what I was going back for because, you know, when we had the conversation, I said, what, what's entailed, uh, what, what's, what, what's going to happen? And so you do have the choice to go, actually, mm, I don't want to come back with it, mm-hmm. you know. So it's, it's, yeah. I just, I like the way things are for me now. There. It's great. Yeah. But it's been, it's been a long time. I mean, my very first, I was first there in 1998. You know, it's now 2021, you know, and it's never really gone out of my life. You know, it's still, it's, it's still a big part of my life. And at any point, the phone can ring and say, right, we, you know, we want to back, would you like to play this storyline? So it's still, it's, it's never really a chapter closed for me. EastEnders really it's not it mm-hmm. doesn't ever appear to be the end yeah yeah absolutely yeah it was, was it after just after the first time you left EastEnders you did the X Factor the singing yeah. see the sort of celebrity X Factor was yeah. it that was the yeah, exactly. yeah yeah I remember that I remember that was it because um was I don't know if this is true or not that didn't didn't Sharon Osbourne accidentally reveal you were pregnant yes. Oh, was that a true story? Yeah, true okay. Story. Yes, she did. Because <laughs> yeah. she had, um, it was really early days, and I hadn't. Yeah. My my, fa- I think my mum might have known, and my and my mother-in-law, you know, my, my husband's side of the family knew. Um, and I don't know whether she was just privy to the information, or whether something had been, or whether I whether I was in the makeup room and, and I'd said something about being pregnant. But I think she assumed that it was common knowledge then right. and then on the show that day she went oh and it's such great news and you've got a little baby in your tummy and everything and it's like because uh, it you know live yeah. and I just thought oh I, my family don't know <laughs> this oh and I it's just been revealed um I mean it was quite a nice way for it to be to be exposed really I have to say but it was just a right. moment of like whoa whoa you know and you can there's no there's no rewinding and retaking that that's that's out you know it's out yeah but it's, it's quite, you know, it's quite a lovely oh. thing to say to Bess, really, now, you know, um, about how her <laughs> being in my tummy was revealed. Yeah, her baby reveal was Sharon Osborne. Yeah, they are. <laughs> there you go. So when you did that, was that the same year they had um, Rebecca Luz on? Yeah, I mean, James, they, they, that was, they'd only done it that year and it was never to be seen right. again. And I think right. they did it a couple, maybe a couple of years ago, I think, or right. with Martin Bashir, if I remember rightly. Um, so yeah. it... It, yeah, it, literally, there's only ever been two series. The, the one way when right. I did, and that one that was only, you know, a couple of years ago. So that was with Rebecca Lewis and James Hewitt. Yeah. Yeah, because that was, Sharon had that famous sort of headbutt with them in the there, show, wasn't it? I think there was a bit of a spat going on. Yeah, I mean. She, yeah, was that a bit awkward? Like, like being backstage and knowing that was going on? I, think I'd, I don't know. All I know is, I mean, Sharon just doesn't mince her words. You know, she, if she doesn't like yeah. you you'll know about it you know it's um and yeah I mean it was bit that was big news at the time wasn't it all that stuff so Mm. you know the coup for the show I suppose to get get those guys on but it it was fun I mean I you know I think I got um I think through through the people fundraising you know because it was it was done for charity my charity got something like a hundred thousand pounds you know so it was unbelievable I mean it just it was unbelievable how how brilliant it was for the charity that I'm a patron of. So that that was amazing, and that's you know that was that was the reason for doing it. I mean, I didn't think for a minute I would kind of stay till the end. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, and it was as much as I was terrified, and I was totally terrified. How, you know, you can imagine just it, it, it's not as much as I'm. I will do musical theatre to stand up on say stage and sing pop songs as me in front of Sharon Osbourne, Louis Walsh, and Simon Cowell was just 
totally so far removed from what I do. So it was it was terrifying. But something I look back on now and I think I'm so pleased I got you know my basically I got my balls out really and I and I did it because. Yeah. It'd have been so easy just to go, no, 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 I can't, I can't, I can't. And in fact, I did have that conversation with my husband at the time. I said, I don't think I can do it. I don't think I can do it. I don't, you know, I think I'd started rehearsals and he just said, all right, phone him up, don't do it. I think he kind of tried to, uh, you know, double bluff me and said, don't do it then. I went, but I can't, I can't, I can't pull it out. I can't pull it out. But I, there was a moment when I just thought, I don't, I don't think I can do this. I really don't. And I remember having sound checks and they were saying, right, can you hear, what can you hear on stage? What do you need more of me thinking? I don't know what you're talking about. Why can't I can just hear me singing really badly. <laughs> just, that's all I could hear. Um, so it was, it was technically quite a good learning curve as well, just kind of fall back and what I can hear in my earpiece and, you know, levels, learning all about that. I, you know, I had yeah. a newfound respect for live artists that have to stand up and, and do that sort of thing and sing live. Yeah. You know, it's tough. Well, I mean, what was tougher that one? Because you did the jungle as well. Was that a different? You did the jungle yeah. as well. I mean, what? Yeah, I think I think I built myself up, myself up into such a frenzy about that about um, being away from Bess and it, and just kind of it being mm. revolting. That once you're in the camp, it's it's in terms of um, horribleness. You just you just kind of get on with it, and it, you very quickly get on with being with nature really and about you go to bed when the sun sets you get up when the sun rises you just you're it's the loveliest thing about it was you're totally out of the rat race there's no phones there's no anything there's no there's no this to do there's no that to do you just have to be there and and engage with yourself and be with complete strangers um and I know there's revolting trials and things to do but I think I'd, I'd, I'd made it such a nightmare in my head thinking, oh my God, what are they going to throw at me? It's going to be awful. Mm. You know, and after I jumped out of the plane was one of the first things I did. I just then, from that point on, I just had a different kind of attitude. And I thought, actually, I'm going to, I'm going to enjoy this. I'm going to really throw myself into it and make, and make the most out of it. And I did. And I did. I actually, I really quite enjoyed it. I missed my, my, you know, my, my, Bessie was only three at the time or just turning three. So it was the first time I'd ever been away from her. So I struggled with that a little bit, but actually it was, it was a brilliant experience. It really was. I would, I, if anybody got offered the chance, I would definitely say to them, you must do it. Must. Yeah. I, yeah. And I, I suppose like, I mean, coming out of that, was it, do you sort of have this, um, I suppose, like uh, acknowledgement that, wow, I can't believe I've done that. Cause like, you know, cause it's like when you watch it, it seems like such a tough, thing to, to do for for a certain amount of time yeah I mean yeah I was I was just pleased that I I've never kind of thought of myself as being very outdoorsy or yeah. the sort of person that would like to put up a tent and camp and um so I was pleased that I I adapted very well and just got on with life as we had to have it for the you know I think I was only in there for about two and a half weeks but it was long it was long enough yeah. I was fortunate in in the fact that I was in the camp with Katie Price the second time around when she went and so she right. was yeah. the one that was being voted to do all of the nasty trials so I only I didn't have to do really I didn't have to eat anything revolting apart from things I would send in the bush bush tucker um just the meals at the end of the night I didn't have awful things to eat but um you know, I, it was just, it, 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 there was a fun aspect about it and it is quite bonding because you are having to kind of do things together and, you know, adventure bits mm. and, um, you know, to jump out of a plane was brilliant. It was just, I would never have done something like that. So it is, it's definitely yeah. something I'm, I'm pleased 
that I can tick off for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I guess going back to EastEnders and, you know, we, we've always spoke about it to the people that have come on that have been on the show is, you know, um, Barbara Windsor, you know, and what a legend she was. And I can see you smiling. It happens every time I mention Barbara's name to someone from EastEnders and they, and they, um, when I mentioned her name, I mean, what was it like just working with her? Because again, you were kind of during there, sort of the peak Mitchell era of, of things and, you know, peak Peggy Mitchell. I mean, what was it like working with her? Barbara, uh, you know, looking back now, as much as I'd worked and I, I'm, um, you know, quite a bit before I got extended, I was a job and actress. Barbara was the epitome of professionalism. And, you know, and I'll talk, I can talk about it personally as well, but on a professional level, she, she was, she was at the top of her game with just, she, she just set a standard. And I think, you know, and it doesn't, it does come from the top and she was at the top and, and she would never be late. She never, she, she would never have any excuse not to know her lines. You know, um, she would just be on it so much. And she was a brilliant role model. She really, really was. And I, I loved working with her. There was never that fear. You know, you can work with some actors, you think they're not going to know this. They're not going to know this. And, you know, um, we're going to have to kind of, it's going to be tough to get through a scene. But there was, there was always such a comfortability with Barbara that you could just tr the trust. I could, you could trust her to be on it, to know what she was doing, to help you out. Um, so I loved, I loved having scenes with her. I just loved being in the Vic with her, totally. Because also equally in between takes, she could have a laugh. She, her anecdotes were amazing. Um, she liked a good old gossip. There's no denying that. And, and I was very fortunate and she liked me. Um, so I just felt, I felt very looked after by her, totally and utterly looked after by her. Um, and I just think she taught me a lot. I really do. I think she taught me a lot. And um, she certainly made her mark. Uh, and, and, and people did love her. You know, people that didn't know her loved her. You know, she really has a, a legacy and, and people just have, they've just got such warm, fond memories and feelings about her. But I, I just feel gifted that I can say I worked with her closely. I knew her. Um, I knew her really quite well. And, and she, she spoiled me rotten, really. She took me under her wing and I'll never, ever forget it. That's amazing. So, so many people have said that, like how lovely she was to them on, on set. And I guess like that sort of mentor yeah. figure and, you know, like, like having a gossip with her. Did, I mean, did you get to see her um, a, a little bit before she was, got very poorly or? No, I hadn't seen Barbara for quite some time, actually. Okay. Um, no, I, I, I remember when just she first, when she, I remember when she first had a fall in a, or she was thrown off, I think, the seat in the cat in a, in a black cab. And I remember her saying, I think she was struggling with her memory from having a, when she banged her head. And I remember just saying, uh, you know, this, this knocks really. And I remember, uh, it's made me think about that a lot, you know, since she's passed, just thinking, you know, I remember her saying, oh, I, I'm sure I'm struggling my lines. I'm sure it's from, from bloody hitting my head in that cab that once. And that kind of came back to me again. I remember that story, you know, after she died. And, I, you know, I, I don't know if that was related or not, but I remember I remember that happening to her. But the time, all the time I worked with her, Barbara was always, she was always on it. She was, you know, she could never, there was never a point where she didn't know her lines and she was brilliant. But I think, I think towards the end, that's why, she kind of stepped down in the end. I think she was struggling to retain lines and to learn them. And, and you know, we get that as we get older anyway. I mean, it takes me a lot longer to learn to learn scripts now. I like to have them well in advance, um, you know, and I think that just happens to all of us with age. But 
yeah I, you know and I'm, I'm sad that I didn't see Barbara before before she went actually I am mm-hmm. sad I guess you've got lots of fond memories yeah, I have. as well I have I mean yeah. we had the same size feet as well so we'd, we'd share shoes <laughs> oh amazing <laughs> we're like but we're the same height we're only, I'm only five foot so um, yeah <laughs> great so, so when you would I guess study in you know theatre and drama school and things like that I mean lots of people that I spoke to they, they seem to have different experiences of drama school and I wonder what like your experience was was it like quite intense a bit you know some people say like after drama school I felt like I needed therapy but I don't know I mean how how I mean, what was it like for you was it was it okay yeah mine was different I, I went to I went to theatre school from the age of like part-time classes I went to Red Roofs and then when I was turning 12 at the age you go to senior school they opened up a day school so it was something that I was and I'd, I'd, I'd had a couple of professional jobs at that point I'd worked in the West End in some musicals um and and I just knew at the age of 12 I didn't want to go to an ordinary school at state comp I wanted to go to this theatre school that they were opening in Maidenhead so my my training was was theatre school from the age of 12 to 17 really um and I have only the fondest the fondest memories of it I I adored every second of it but you know mine was all singing and all dancing and you know it was that time of Italia Conti and Barbara Speak and Corona mm-hmm. Corona there was a theatre school <laughs> yeah. um yeah so it was it was around about that time and it was kind of very it was kind of trendy it was that all of the kids from fame was on the tv and you know I wanted to be on top of the pots as a dancer and uh, it was just that was mine mine wasn't so you know I didn't go to postgrad I didn't go to RAD or any, any drama schools then mm-hmm. later on in life and because I'd worked you know more or less through the whole of my theatre school days from the age of 12 to 17 so for me a natural progression was to finish at Red Roofs and then go out and fully go into the big wide world um and I just have no, I loved, I loved every single second of it. You know, my parents split up during the time I was at theatre school and, and my mum moved back to Birmingham where she was from with her parents and my dad, you know, kind of lived in Shepparton and, and I got, I went and lived with a family that was around the corner from my school just so I could continue to go to, go to Red Roof. So it was my absolute lifeline. I don't know what I'd have done actually Amazing. without it, to be honest. You know, and, and my headmistress at the time, she was my... She was my inspiration. She was such. She believed in me, and she just kind of had faith in me. And and I just and and because of her, it's just something I always knew I wanted to do, and that was my path. It was there was never any question about that I was going to do something else, really. Um, so from a very early age, even you know, my family are not in the business, and it's not like it's come from anywhere else. It was just something I I was born with. I think it's just a bug I had in me, and. And my headmistress, and she was my agent at the time, that she was a theatrical child agent, and she just kind of grew that seed, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And do do your kids sort of following in your footsteps at all with the performing? Or I don't, I don't know really whether they can, can help, but not. I mean, just in terms of, I mean, it's all I know. You know, mm-hmm. Betty sings constantly, but I'm convinced that's because she was a baby in my tummy when, when I did X Factor. That I just, I'm right. convinced that she sings because there was just music time um but yeah so uh, Bess is more musical she's a pianist and you know she reads music that was nothing I ever I ever learned to do um with Rosie yet I don't know you know I'm the jury's out at the moment with her she's too young I, I try not to label I just don't want to kind of you know it's so easy I always say to my kids it's so easy for teachers, go, for teachers even to go oh your mum is that so you'll obviously go into that line of work and so I want to go no 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 you just you make your own choices you you know I can help you if that's what you choose but 
don't do it just because I did it, you know. Um, mm-hmm. But Bessie, Bessie is musical, so I kind of, I see that being more of a path, but as opposed to it being acting like, like I went into, but she's, yeah, she, she could easily go down the music route. I don't know in what, in what, in what way, but I, I kind of see music being something that she will end up doing, which would be lovely. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, I mean, you spoke earlier about sort of, you know, private investigators and all that sort of following you. And I'm, I wonder, I mean, one news story that's made me, and I'm surprised how angry, I mean, there's lots of sad stories and things that can make you angry, but a story that's made me surprisingly angry, mm-hmm. or as horrific as it is, is the Sarah Everett mm-hmm. story. Um, you know, and I was, you know, obviously we're all angry, but I was surprised how angry um, I was by the story because mm-hmm. um, I guess of the situation, the, the, the I say person used uh, loosely that you committed the crime was, you know, a police officer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just want to get, cause you talk about private investigators and stuff like that. And I guess, you know, have there been times where you've had to walk around on your own and you felt unsafe perhaps, yeah. you know? I mean, you know, yeah. you, you hear that story, you do, you do pretend to make a phone call. I mean, that's, that's, mm-hmm. that's what, that's my experience of walking home. Um, it doesn't even have to be at particularly in the dark. You know, if I just think, um, I'm going to walk past somebody that, you know, I'm just, you get a funny vibe from that might be staring a bit too long. Or something. I will literally always pretend to make a phone call. Um, I will increase my pace. And it, do you know what's, I mean, it, make, it makes me totally angry about the way in which that all came about with that revolting man. Um, because do you know what's upsetting is that as law abiding citizens and if, if, if somebody says that they're a police officer and you've done something wrong, and they they would like to you know arrest you and take you to the station for questioning. I would say, oh okay, and I would have got into the car, and I know mm-hmm. that I would have done exactly the same as a law-abiding person. So what makes me cross is they say, you know, that the 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 tips on how to not, you know, how to be, how to be safe is to kind of go and run right. and call a bus driver. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. Just I, we are taught to be respectful of the police, and. I would, I would have said, oh, okay. And I would honestly have handed my, almost handed myself in and got in the back of the car. So, you know, and, and the, so the conversation goes on now to my girls, you know, and I've, I've now had to say to Bessie, please, please. And it's a conversation, I'm, you know, I'm having with myself at the same time. If there is only one policeman that is saying these things, you have to, you have to be brave enough to say, I'm really sorry, but you need to get somebody else here to just to, to, to kind of back up what you're saying. And that takes real strength to do that. And, and that's my fear that you just, you don't want to ever to be seen to going against the law or, or to be disrespectful of somebody in a position of authority. You know, that I've always taught my kids, you know, if you're in trouble, you go and find a policeman or a policewoman, you go and find, and it goes against all of that. And that's so scary. And as a mother of two girls, and, and as I say, and to myself, I want to go, Luce, you must have this conversation with yourself. If if a, a single police, you know, being stopped in my car, can I say, if a if a policeman says, and he's on his own, you're to get in the back of the car, am I allowed to go, no, sorry, I'm not. No, I'm not getting the back of the car. You know, so I, um, it, it's, it's a conversation that we are now having in our house as a result of that tragic, tragic death, you know. Yeah. Uh, and one, and one I wish we weren't having to have, because it goes against everything that I, I've been, you know, I was taught as a girl myself, as a, as a little girl, about how how to treat and, and who to go to in times of need. 
And I was saying to my husband, I just know for a fact, if he'd have said to me, here's my card, you are out, you are breaking lockdown rules, get in the car, I'm, I'd, have, I'd have done it. I, and, and I think I'm savvy and I think I'm, you know, I can stand up for myself. I would have done it. I would have got in that car. I know for a fact. Yeah. And that's what is terrifying. The abuse of power is terrifying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm, and it was, I'm, glad, I, I'm know, glad that you're. It makes you angry, you know. Too. I mean, I mean, just it's a bad light on men. It's a bad light mm-hmm. on the police. It's just it's and it, it and it goes against everything to say that we've been we've been taught as good as decent human beings about going against what a police officer says to you. You're not. You know, yeah. Well, I was just. It was more like I mean, as a guy, you know, I'm six foot four. I'm a, you know, it's I, I'll never understand what it's like to be scared walking by myself in in London. Yeah. But but I was seeing so many people on social media and stuff saying I've been that person that has felt vulnerable and worried about someone that's been a bit close to me in London. I was surprised how many people spoke out and said that this is a, this isn't like a one off. I mean, it's you know, it's you know, it's mm-hmm. to end so horrifically is a unique situation, but. Mm-hmm. For someone to be in that situation of, you know, being approached by a man is is so normal for, for so many people. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I remember, uh, you know, and it, it, is, it is normal. And, I, and I, I, I think if I had the conversation with every single one of my girlfriends, they would say they've had a situation where they've had to pretend to be doing something or they've had to kind of, you know, or they felt vulnerable or scared um, mm-hmm. and not known exactly what, what you should do are then stopping and maybe looking at in a shop window. I mean, you just come up with all these things, you know, you, yeah. I, my fear is I'm talking loudly on the phone and then my phone starts to ring and then they know, they know then that I'm lying and that's going to make them cross. You know, you have yeah. all these conversations in your head like, oh my goodness, now they're going to know that I, I think that they are some, you know, and then you're upsetting somebody that might not be somebody that's going to do something bad to you. So then you're upset, worried about, it's just a whole level of this worry. And yeah, so it's, it, you know, it's horrible. I remember when I lived in a flat in, in uh, Highgate, when I very first moved to London, and I'd say it was probably back in about 90, 91, 92, and I was renting a flat with a friend of mine on the ground floor flat. And, there, and I remember there being a flasher that would come past my window in the evening, and it was a regular occurrence. And, and, and it's only now that, that listening to this, because there ever are, that you hear that that, that behavior turns into, can turn into something else. That is something else in the making. I, we were never taught that. We never knew that. We just thought, oh, silly old sod, arcing, you know, getting his bits out. That's how we were taught to kind of just look at something in now. So it has opened up a very, you know, a, a good discussion to have now. And they're, they're saying, if that kind of stuff happens, you must be reporting that because this, this could potentially be stopping somebody else to go on and that's going to commit further and more serious crimes. You know, and I was never, I never knew that. So we are being made more aware now about what this kind of behavior is and what it means, um, mm-hmm. you know, which is, it, it's all interesting and it, and it can only be for the better good really. So, mm-hmm. you know, if we've learned something from this tragic death and, I, and I'm pleased I'm having this conversation with my daughter that I might not have done until she came home and would have said to me, oh mom, that just happened to me. Uh, so mm-hmm. now I'm having that before this conversation, before something like that happens, I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I'm arming her as such with, with the information. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I nearly called you. I nearly called you Lisa. Then Lucy, it's been it's absolutely. It's been. <laughs> it's so been. It's so lovely talking to you today. Um, obviously, on the shapes of stories, the podcast, we always talk about a story that means something to us. A special story that means something to us. Whether it be 
a childhood book, whether it be a book or someone's personal story or a story that's happened to you. So is there like a story that you hold special to your heart? I don't know about a story, but you know, when I thought about this, I just, and I and I referenced her earlier on, but there, but there was a woman, you know, my headmistress called June Rose, who ran mm-hmm. Red Roof Theatre School. I try and think of, you know, other people that have had such an influence in my life that have shaped, that have shaped my life. Um, and, and she, she has to be the main, the main story, really the main, the main person that kind of comes from the name that flashes up in my head. If ever I had to say who is responsible for who, who, who guided you. And I mean, this woman is 90, 90 years of age now, and she's still, you know, going strong for her age, but she, she she created a path for me totally and utterly she had such belief in me um and she enabled me to kind of look at this this industry as something that was totally achievable and totally doable and not something that that was way out of my realms or my reach and made it kind of normal for me to think oh yeah that's my job that's what I'm going to do because this woman had kind of imprinted such a belief on me that it was never in question that that's always what I was going to do. And even in dark days when, when things are quiet and when you don't work, I believe because of what she gave me, I, I ne- my doubt never wavers. My, my ambition to go on never wavers. And I truly believe I hold her responsible <laughs> and blamable for, you know, for still being in this business now, as, as yucky as it can be at times. But she is my, she shaped my life totally and utterly. Um, with her belief brilliant absolutely amazing well Lucy it's been absolutely grand talking to you today and I look forward to seeing oh, I banged on a um, bit even I'm sick of the sound of my voice <laughs> well, no, people, people got to come and see you in Panto what, I mean what, where is uh, it that you, you are I'm, this in, I'm in Rickmansworth and I'm playing Fairy mm. Godmother I played that uh, brilliant the, the year before we went into lockdown I did I, you know I, I played Fairy Godmother the first time I've ever done it I normally play it shows my age really you know, as I'm getting old but um, yes I love her <laughs> I love her she's fun brilliant. she's a quirky very godmother and in fact i channel barbara Windsor a little bit i think in it she's my oh i might have to pop along now i might have to pop i might have to pop along and see you in action now fabulous okay great lovely to meet you too Yeah, really big thanks uh, to Lucy um, for coming on the show. Really great to hear she's doing well. And um, yeah, I hope she has an amazing time in Panto. Uh, hopefully COVID's not going to, to ruin Panto for another year. I'm sure it won't. Positive vibes being sent out to Lucy and all those in Panto and different theatres and shows that are currently ongoing. Um, but yeah, guys, thanks for listening. It really means a lot. If you're able to support the show in any way, um, please find out how you can... Um, uh, donate to us you, you know you can find out all that information in the description box of the app that you're using to listen to the podcast on and um yeah it just means a lot it helps us be able to bring you shows more regularly and um, to give you sort of the best quality as possible and um yeah it just really means a lot if you're able to donate and helps us bring more content to you more often uh, which i'd really love to do and um yeah so thanks everyone that's supporting us so far if you're able to donate please i can't stress that enough without sort of me going i need your money (laughs) um but yeah please um support the show in any way you can follow us on twitter at shapes of stories you could follow me on twitter under l prestige 7 you could follow me on instagram under prestige books or you could follow me on facebook lawrence prestige 
Uh, be sure to check out my book, The Boy Who Lost His Smile. I'm helping raise money for the Shore Mine charity as I talk about my battle with um, mental health, depression, addiction. I talk faith, talk COVID, talk growing up as a, as a guy, toxic masculinity. Um, yeah, we covered quite a lot. And um, thank you for everyone that's given me um, lovely feedback so far about the book. It really means a lot. Uh, but thanks again, guys, and I'll catch you next time.